0: It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. And I guess we're all here, survivors of uh, the Hurricane uh, Hillary. And so uh, it's good to have you back. Uh, We're going to continue um, this series of a book entitled Homecoming, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, last time uh, we ended at pretty much talking about the whys and the wherefores of um, this whole Jew and Gentile merger uh, coming together as you know, one new man in Messiah, and uh, one new man in Abba Father, and uh, we we ended off the last show, and um, it was emphasizing the fact that by bringing these two groups together, God is trying to send a message to the kingdom of rebellion headed by Satan. Um, We talked about Israel being God's time clock. Uh, We talked about uh, how important it is to use the Hebrew calendar when you study the Hebrew prophets. Um, You can't use a Gentile calendar uh, that was instituted uh, in the 3rd or 4th century uh, by Pope Gregory. Um, It's a solar calendar. When the Jews prophetically use a lunar calendar, lunar slash solar, but mostly lunar, and um, they're very, very different um, marking points as to on the prophetical fulfillment time clock, and we mentioned last week that uh, Israel is God's time clock, and so if you want to see how close uh, we are to things wrapping up and being fulfilled of the in these end times, uh, we always pretty much watch what's happening to Israel. And we talked last week about uh, the Jewish people coming back to their own land, Israel becoming a nation in 1948 after uh, the disaster of World War II and the Holocaust, etc. and all All that Satan was trying to prevent got stopped, and um, we say why. I want to refer you to last week's show because it's an interesting um, outline of events, how God supernaturally brought this uh, dispossessed uh, people back to their land of promise that was promised to them way back in the early covenants um, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so we live in a unique time, uh, and we talked about this last week as well, that God is building something very, very special, um, not only um, as us being or with us being, God's place of abode, where he's going to live. And we talked a lot about that using John 17 last week. Again, I refer you to last week's show. Um, It's in the uh, archives here at KPRZ um, under podcasts, or you can go to my website at www.simpletruthministries.net and then click onto the media page, and then you can see the show listed there. But we want to move on, and we want to... Basically, pick up where we left off, and where we left off uh, we were emphasizing that this merger of these two groups is to form a new standard that quite honestly the contemporary church is just not used to, which is uh, to say that we God wants to signal the Kingdom of Rebellion of Satan, and we see this in Ephesians chapter 3, um, he wants to show Satan his manifold wisdom of God. He's going to send all a message to all the principalities and all the powers, and uh, you can find this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Um, and... I mention it on page 257 of my book. And I said the rollout of this mystery of one new man in Messiah, one new man in Abba Father, was kept hidden for ages. It's designed to reveal. It's designed to demonstrate to the ruling authorities and powers, that is, principalities and powers in the, in the heavens, um, that they're about to learn just how broad and without limit is the many-sided wisdom of the Father, which is evidenced by the creation of this new messianic community of both Jews and Gentiles, and but what element of the many-sided wisdom you might ask? Well, that is explained in Ephesians chapter four, where it talks about us um, growing up, maturing, uh, becoming. Adults, if you will, leaving our infancy behind, and to grow up into the head of this new construction project called the the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ. And uh, it says, with Jesus as the head, the entire body is in the process of being fit together. You've seen the construction terms here, fitted together and held together by the support of every joint, which each part working to fulfill its function, and this is how the body grows and builds itself up in divine love. And that's Ephesians chapter four eleven through 16. I read that out of the complete Jewish Bible. Um, and so what does that look like? Well, if you look a little further in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, uh, it says, and that... You will put on the new man which was created according to God. And how do you distinguish this new man? What does it look like? Um, What does it sound like? What's what's its appearance um, reveal? And here's the key to the explanation in Ephesians 4.24. It says, in true righteousness and holiness. And we ended last week's show by saying, well, how does righteousness come about? Well, righteousness comes about by us going from infancy to adulthood, learning how to obey God's will, learning to do what we talk about in the Lord's Prayer. Um, when we, Jesus only taught us one prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Here's the obedience part thy will be done. And as we begin to keep his commandments, then all of a sudden, this transformation of us from infancy over to adulthood, referred to in Ephesians chapter 4, we begin to completely revamp and regenerate ourselves, spiritually, emotionally, um, in our soul life, in our physical life, every dimension of us begins to change because we're going from the, as uh, we referred to earlier, uh, when King Agrippa asked Paul, why did you um, all of a sudden become one of these people on the way? And Paul explained to King Agrippa that his assignment was to bring the gospel of the good news of the kingdom to the Gentile people, uh, basically uh, opening their eyes, bringing them from darkness to the light, and from the power of Satan over their lives to God. And so we explained that in last week's um, show, talking about what does that look like, and we saw that in Romans chapter six. Um, I will just refer you back to reading the entire um, chapter in Romans 6 because that's what we use at water baptisms. And we explain to people, um, you're basically dying to your old way of doing things, your old way of life, your way of thinking. Uh, You're repenting, which means to change the way you think. And you are embarking on not just a death of your of your old way of doing things, leaving Egypt, if you will, but you're also symbolically, when you're brought up out of the baptism waters, you're being resurrected into this new life, into being part and parcel of this new, one new man in Yeshua, Messiah, in Jesus, our Deliverer, our Savior. And so... That's a process. That's something that pretty much doesn't happen by just doing add water and shake. Why? Because, as part of the fallen kingdom with a curse over it that we see from Genesis chapter 3, there's a lot of instilled and inbred uh, rebellion that comes with the package. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you've been a parent and you raise little toddlers, um, you'll notice that there's just certain things that they have inclination to do. And, for example, um, you don't have to sit them uh, off to one side and have a little training session to say, okay, kids, today's the day where we're going to learn how to lie. And they might look at you saying, well, we, being little two-year-olds and three-year-olds and the terrible twos and whatever, We know how to do that. We know how to lie already. It comes with the package. And so that is who we are in our fallen state before we come to relationally and experientially know the deliverance and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which in turn reconciles us not just to him, but also back to our Heavenly Father. And the Heavenly Father... um, Our Heavenly Father is waiting for His children to return to Him, but there's a process that we've explained in earlier shows of when we leave Egypt, uh, talking from a symbolic standpoint, we go out to the desert to get to know someone who we don't know yet, which is our Father. And our Father has certain um, responsibilities as our Father to protect us to provide for us, and, of course, to give us our identity. All three of those um, elements are in the Lord's Prayer. But when it comes to protection, um, there are certain uh, rules that he, as our Father, lays down for our individual and our corporate protection. Those rules that are laid down through learning about the, the Ten Commandments, etc., cetera, um, are— designed not to basically rain on your parade of independence, although that is the point, is that we are becoming dependent on God and deciding that our independence is basically affiliating us with the opposite kingdom, with the kingdom of darkness. And that is a process. It takes some time in order to walk that out. And so, uh, we asked a question um, last week, how do you define the kingdom of rebellion, the kingdom of darkness? And it's basically known for its primary telltale sign of disobedience to God's will. The opposite kingdom is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, the kingdom of basically what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the kingdom of obedience. And we have to get down to brass tacks to say, when we engage in disobedience, as we pointed out in page 263, that leads to separation from God, which basically leads to death. Separation from God is death, if you look at the definition of eternal life, which is John 17, 3, and we went over that as well. That John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So I want to pick up where we left off, and on page 263, uh, we basically indicate that God's eternal moral law doesn't change. Our contemporary cultural values have no impact on God's requirements, that we live by his standards in order to not just survive, but to prosper. And we talked about uh, reading uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 on the blessings if we obey God and the unfortunate curses that will uh, befall us if we disobey him. And that that would be a good homework assignment. Check out um, the comparison of the blessing verses versus the verses of curse, Um, depending on how we respond to God's overtures. And I will just read it here. God's eternal moral law does not change um, his requirements that we live by his standards, his protective standards, his guidelines, his rules, the standards by which the adversary's kingdom will be finally overthrown. By what? Only loving obedience on our part defeats the opposite, defeats hateful rebellion, rebellion being disobedience, um, and basically um, the God's kingdom is manifested with, with the opposite, which is obedience. Only loving obedience defeats death, are being separated from God and brings us into life, which is union with God. We talked about that last week. Union with God is eternal life and actually is the goal of our Judeo-Christian walk. Now, if you go down to John 15, 10 in the complete Jewish Bible, where we say we seek a relationship with, with Jesus first, and then he introduces us to the Father, we see how that um, unfolds in John chapter 14, but it says here in John chapter 15, 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will stay in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I stay in his love. So we're saying union with God is relationship, and in order to remain in that relationship, Jesus is pretty clear here in John fifteen ten. He says very clearly, if you keep my commandments, you will stay in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and stay in his love. That's eternal life. You are experiencing his love in the here and now, in the present moment. And then in John fifteen six, Jesus again says, Unless a person remains united with me, this is out of the complete Jewish Bible, he is thrown away like a branch, and he dries up. And such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire where they are burned up, because they're of no use. There's no life in them. They're separated. And uh, I point out in the next uh, paragraph that loving obedience is God's measuring rod by which our possession of eternal life, which is knowing Father God relationally and Jesus Christ whom he sent, but loving... Uh, obedience is a measuring rod. You can picture something being measured here like a tape measure uh, by which our possession of eternal, eternal life, knowing God relationally, knowing God relationally and obeying his word can be measured. Give us an example in john fourteen twenty one Jesus says, "Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved." by my father and i will love him and reveal myself to him now notice there is a condition precedent here there is a condition and it starts off in john 14:21 says whoever has my commands and keeps them so if people say well i love jesus etc cetera, etc cetera, but they're not keeping his commands the question becomes um is the measuring rod which Father God uses and Jesus uses, does that really indicate that you truly have love for the Lord? Being challenged in the obedience area is something that we all have to contend with, and we have to be motivated by something that transcends just kind of rote obedience, but basically a motivation is to say, this is a covenantal uh, engagement, and I choose to put on display my love for my divine Father and his Son and to say that love is going to be expressed by how I conduct myself with my behavior being obedient as I listen to the leadings of his Holy Spirit. Now... Let's go on to the next one. As we look at the ultimate purpose of this One New Man construction project, we finally are able to see the ultimate purpose of God's construction project coming to light, which is, and here we are, 1 John 3, 9 10. 1 John chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. I took this out of the complete Jewish Bible on page 64. 264. And it indicates that no one who has God as his father keeps on sinning. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that preached from the pulpit in a Gentile church. No one who has God as his father keeps on sinning because The seed planted by Father God remains in him. Well, what seed is that? That seed is the Son, is is Yeshua, is Jesus, our Deliverer. It goes on. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as his Father. Here is how one can distinguish Clearly, between God's children and those of the adversary, everyone who does not continue doing what is right is not from God. Now, I I think that verse is pretty revolutionary when you think about the typical sort of things that are taught um, on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. It does not... I don't think I've ever heard this said, that if we have enough of God influencing us, abiding within us, living in us, this is based on John 17 and what we talked about last week. In other words, I in you, Father, you in me, we in them, and them in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Well, when you get down to John 17, verse 20 through 24, it's talking about not just... The father and the son living in us but also we as his children living within them i'm going to read this again from the top where are you first john three verses nine and ten this is out of the complete jewish bible no one who has god as his father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by god remains in him That is, he cannot continue sinning. And notice it doesn't say uh, that he will continue to sin. I've heard that preached many times, that as long as we remain here on earth, uh, thank God for for Jesus because he'll forgive us, and we have this, you know, through implication, this uh, continuing amnesty for our sin. And that's not why the Union of Jew and Gentile into this new entity called one new man in Messiah and one new man in Father God, being used as a signal to the opposite kingdom, to say the manyfold wisdom of God is that these children of mine says Father God, going through the construction process of Ephesians chapter four, being built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets of the primary or the first testament, and moving on, maturing and developing, going from being infants into mature adults that listen to the Father, that respond to the Father. They they listen through and by means of the Holy Spirit who produces wisdom to know what to do, next what to say next how to uh, behave next and it's really living on a micro basis and it's basically saying come in more indwell more and god is saying i want you to become in union with me so that you can come in more and also indwell more through the son by the spirit we're all to come back to the father that's the whole point Of this process. And I conclude here, the result of all this new construction equals a divine human house whose inhabitants have defeated the rebellion and darkness of Satan's disobedience by the actual indwelling of the Godhead into human dwelling places. Actual indwelling, not theoretical. You ready for this? We'll explore this some more on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back, Saints. We are talking about uh, what is the ultimate purpose of bringing Jew and Gentile together into this expression of uh, actual righteousness and true holiness. And why is that important uh, as signaling to the enemy enemy's kingdom of rebellion and disobedience. is because God is saying, in essence, my people are being delivered from the power of Satan over to God. My people are being transformed into having God's likeness by this indwelling, this mutual indwelling that we talked about before the break, and that indwelling of likeness of the presence of God through obedience is now being imaged Out to other people. And that's consistent with what we saw last week in John 17, where when Jesus is praying to the Father about the Jewish apostles who were there, and he says, Father, I pray not only for these, referring to these Jewish apostles, but also those who will hear about your love from them. And that was in the future tense, talking about another group of people, which was the Gentiles. And then he goes into what the kingdom looks like in this mutual coming together, in union, in relationship. And he says, I in you, Father, and you and me. We in them, and them in us, so that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me. That is our purpose. Our purpose is to allow the indwelling, the embodiment of the divine Godhead. Son first, he brings the Spirit as we come to the Holy Spirit, but they're both pointing to the Father, and it's the actual indwelling of Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in us as a divine slash human house. That's the new, That's what the new construction is all about. And with this new construction that we saw about in Ephesians chapter 2, the result of all this new construction is this equal to a human house in which the divinity lives. This includes all aspects of the Godhead. It includes the Son. We always start with the Son. Son, The Son brings us to the Father. But when you think about it, it includes the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's job is to bring us initially to the Son. He draws us to Jesus. Jesus points us to the Father. You see how that's all connected there. But the point is, is that eternal life is our experiencing this embodiment. It's our relational experiencing of the contact of knowing who we are as sons of the Most High God, members of the household of God, and also members of what is called the Commonwealth of Israel. We'll go into that in just a minute. But the result of all this new construction, I say on page 264, equals a divine human house. Think about that. A divine slash human house whose inhabitants have defeated the rebellion of darkness of disobedience and here's how you do it how does how do you defeat the re, the rebellious kingdom of darkness known for its disobedience its lack of obedience the opposite of obedience how do you defeat that and it's by the actual indwelling of the complete godhead into us as human dwelling places of God. And again, that's actual indwelling, not theoretical. I use this as an example in John fourteen twenty three, out of the Complete Jewish Bible, um, where Jesus says, Jesus answered him and said, if someone loves me, he will keep my word. In other words, that's the proof of the claim that someone loves the Lord. He will keep my word, and my Father will love him. So notice it doesn't. It begins with Jesus, but he immediately brings up, what's the result of you loving me and showing me that you love me by keeping my word? Now look at the next part. And my Father will love him. And plural, we will come and make our home with him. John fourteen twenty three. And so I say in the next uh, paragraph, the struggle of the two kingdoms of light and life versus darkness and death involves the restorative fulfillment and culmination of every hebrew covenant that was made between god and the hebrew people the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy about delivering the children of god from what from demonic captivity as we can see uh, in a representation and uh, through typology of what happened to the jews when they were rescued from egypt they were delivered from demonic captivity pharaoh was a prototype of of satan they were slaves they, they couldn't leave or come and go as they wished. The children of God were brought out of Egypt when they kept the feast of Passover, and they obeyed God, and obeying God gave them life that night. If they hadn't obeyed the instructions that God gave to Moses and then Moses gave to them, they wouldn't have been spared that night that the angel of death flew over the entire area of Egypt. And so you see how important that obedience means life. It is the connection to eternal life. So I'm going to go back and read this sentence. The fulfillment of all messianic prophecy about delivering the children of God from demonic captivity, in other words the power of sin over us, was fulfilled when Messiah Jesus, when he obeyed the will of our Father even to the Point of death on the cross that's when jesus was praying in the garden and that was the new testament fulfillment of the messiah saying to the father in that in that hour of trial even if i'm paraphrasing but even if it kills me father i've asked that you pass have this cup pass for me but even if you decide not to nevertheless yet i will I will obey to the point of death. Not my, my will, but thine be done. The most powerful moment in the scripture. Yeshua's, Jesus' perfect obedience, listen, defeated both the authority, which is the legal permission, and the power of Satan, the adversary, over the material creation, over the earth, and the people of the earth. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' perfect obedience in that moment, praying in the garden of enemy. his perfect obedience to announce that even if it killed him, he was going to do the Father's will by going through that process. His perfect obedience defeated both the authority and the power of Satan, the adversary, over the earth and its people. And I said, in turn, we must learn and exercise that same perfect obedience to do the Father's will in our lives. And we need to, as we obey, to carry out the perfect will of the Father in our lives. What will happen is that will carry out, it will implement the defeat of Satan's control of sin over our lives as we obey Satan lose his his authority or per, and permission to go and go before the throne of God and accuse us as accuser of the brethren as we see in, in the book of Revelation he's standing before the throne accusing us God's children day and night saying well I don't obey you because I'm a I'm the chief rebel of the fallen angel rebellion that occurred in the second heavens that we see in Isaiah chapter 14 and again in Ezekiel 28. But these these so-called people that you God gave authority to run this material creation, well they're doing the same thing that I am. They're not obeying you either. So why would you give them authority to run and continue to basically have dominion over the material creation when they are doing the same things that I am doing. I am the chief rebel, of leader of the angelic rebel rebellion against you. Well, they're also doing what I do. Do you see what happens when, we, as we begin to obey in the micro moment, Little by little, God's will in our life, body, soul, mind, and spirit, and we start to pray the way Jesus did. Father, this may be inconvenient, or I don't want to do this in my in my soul. Um, yet, nevertheless, I am going to do what you are instructing me to do in carrying out your will. When we start to pray the same way Messiah Jesus did when he broke the back, of the spiritual rebellion. The moment that he prayed that in the garden, Satan was through. Satan was done. Why? Because he, as son of man, representing not the first Adam, but he as the second Adam, was saying, this second Adam is going to do the opposite, the complete opposite of what the first Adam did, which was to disobey you and allow all hell to come in and break break forth in the earth. And he did, as our Deliverer, as our Messiah, as our Savior, as our Lord, he did do the Father's will by going to the cross and being the perfect sacrifice in order that we could be reconciled relationally back to our Father. That's how God restored the kingdom by allowing us a bridge of blood through Jesus' obedience to come back to him and have a relationship with Father God and not just Jesus, not just the Holy Spirit, but with our Father. And when that happens, we are now experiencing eternal life, and we maintain that eternal life by walking and continuing in the obedience of God's will. And I say on page 264, the result of all this new construction project that we saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, of bringing Jew and Gentile together and bringing us from infancy to over to maturity by doing God's will, by obeying God's will. We actually are now in a position to have a deeper relationship that even our first parents had in the garden i mean god was with adam and he was with eve but when we're talking about relationship with god in the in the new testament whether you're talking about john chapter 14 or john chapter 15 or john chapter 16 or especially john chapter 17 that's all talking about god in us not god with us it's much more profound, much more deep. But the messaging is, my children belong to me. The struggle of two kingdoms, of light and life versus darkness and death, this this struggle involves the restoration and the fulfillment and culmination of every Hebrew covenant. That's what the covenants were all about. They were all a way to come to know God again, relationally. The fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies about delivering the children of God um, from demonic captivity uh, was fulfilled when Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. When we do the same, when we exercise that same perfect obedience to do the Father's will, we carry out the defeat of Satan's control over our lives. Now check this out in Hebrews 5 verses eight and nine talking about jesus talking about yeshua it says even though he was the son s-o-n he learned obedience through his sufferings and after he had been brought to the goal he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obey him isn't that interesting that even Yeshua, even Jesus, had to learn obedience? And he did it through the sufferings. That's what Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 say. And after he had been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obey him. This is all about defeating Satan's authority and power over us in the realm of being brought out from the control of Satan over our lives by using the power of sin to control us, to destroy us, to steal from us, and to ultimately bring about our death, our perishing. Now, what follows when we learn to obey the Father just as the Son obeyed the Father, all of a sudden Satan's out of a kingdom. What will follow is the restoration of all stolen property. When did that happen? Genesis chapter 3, when Satan, through suggestions, convinced our first parents that God wasn't worthy of trust, that he had um, motives of skullduggery towards them by probably being jealous of giving them too much authority or being fearful of that they would become... A uh, uh, competition to God you know whatever he would he was implying there but what follows when we begin to do the opposite of what the first Adam and Eve did we begin to obey God and thus become righteous and actually righteous not just through imputed righteousness but actual righteousness because that's our new way of manifesting that God is transforming us from the inside out, we begin to start to obey him naturally. It takes a while. It takes practice. But it, it not only can be done, it is being done. What will follow as this defeat of the enemy's kingdom rolls out by our obeying God's will here on earth is that the restitution of the stolen earth will come back to its original intended beneficiaries, which is God's human children, not fallen angels. Fallen angels were never intended to rule the material creation. We were the intended beneficiaries. And I, I cite there Psalm chapter 2, but also I, I'll take you over to Psalm uh, 115 at verse 16. I'm just paraphrasing, but it says the heavens, even the heavens, uh, they are gods. They belong to God, but the earth belongs to the son of men. That's what we're arguing over. That's what we're fighting over, is our ultimate life, but also as members of the household of God and members of the commonwealth of Israel that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, we get back our inheritance which is the earth which is, has been stolen from us through stealth, through deceit, through fraud, and through disobedience. So on Revelation 3.21, it says, I will let him who wins the victory, this is the complete Jewish Bible, I think the New King James says, uh, he, I will allow him who overcomes, and here it says, I will let him who wins the victory, or, or in other words, is an overcomer, sit with me on my throne. Do you ever hear that in in most churches that we have a destiny as children of the Most High God? As we overcome, we are being trained to sit with God on his throne just as I myself also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation chapter 5 talks about us being kings and priests, ruling and reigning with, with Jesus on the earth, not in heaven, but down here, after the kingdom is brought from the heaven to the earth. And I end by saying, now we know that Father God is in the home construction business. Yeah, we're the home, and he's building us. Because he wants to live in this house, we saw that in Isaiah 66, um, chapters. Uh, I'm sorry, verses one and two. We need to explore what the environment of his future home and our future home of us living in him will look like. So this is the subsection here. It says starting over. And I ask at this point, you may be ready to ask, well, what does the one new man, and Messiah, or one new man and Abba Father look like, both individually? And on a corporate level. And one way to look at the one new man and Messiah concept is to uh, consider it to be a construction project under, undertaken by the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to complete a full circle, higher level divine design. In other words, it's the same design that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where man is authorized to have dominion over the earth subject to uh, the headship of God. But here are some additional questions we need to ask. Why is this construction project so important in God's all-encompassing plan of restoring the restitution of all things, of restoring the kingdom to earth? How does the one new man and Messiah paradigm impact the final destiny of God's blueprint for mankind on this earth? And I mentioned that they're all intriguing questions, and they demand answers, clear and simple answers, as we continue to discern through the Holy Spirit how quickly our Father is revealing now, in these times, his sovereign mystery of Ephesians chapter 2, of bringing both Jew and Gentile back to Father God. Through the Son, by the Spirit, God wants to invite us into his construction workshop, so to speak, to have a look at his blueprint so that we may have a more complete and a more wide and comprehensive understanding of the things of which we are an integral part of. Often we see blueprints or arch- on architects' tables. If you're going into a construction um, shack where the, there's ongoing um, development of houses or or commercial buildings, uh, you'll see blueprints on the work tables of the architects, and what we see is we may notice that there's a plan to build something unique, one of a kind, and the purpose of this structure will have to do with the deep desire of its creator, because somebody drew up that blueprint. So I'm going to invite the listeners of this show and the readers of the book to have a a look by going back to chapter 2, which is the subject matter of personal, personal inhabitation construction and mutual indwelling, wherein Father God deeply desires to prepare us internally as his personal dwelling place. I refer you to Isaiah 66. Verse one and two. Let me just read that here really quickly because I, I want to have the impact of that where Father God says, "Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool." Where are we? As Isaiah 66 verse one and two. Thus says the Lord: Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Notice the next question: And where is the house you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Now notice, uh, it didn't say heaven is my home. It says heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And he has a question, but where's the house it will build for me, the place of my rest? He answers the question in verse 2, and he said, For all these things my hand is made, and all these things exist. But on this one will I look. He's talking about his future house, his place of rest. On this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. He's talking about a human habitation. And then I add, we also as members of the body of Messiah Jesus are invited to personally indwell the Godhead. Well, where's that? We studied that last week in John 14, 21, again in John fourteen twenty three, And also check out John 17, verses 20 through 23. And uh, we saw in chapter 2, there are extensive lists of verses that reveal God's desire and his ultimate goal of building his place of rest, future rest with us, as his children. So keep in mind that this is a new construction project which exceeds that which was originally started in the garden. It's a better, much more deeper project. In the garden man was with God, in the garden God was with man, but now God has not is not just with man. He wants to dwell within us and he wants us to dwell within him. Are you ready for this deeper commitment? Are you ready for this change this transformation from within because God's setting up his house so that he can image himself out from us and through us to the rest of the world hope you have a wonderful week with lots of simple truth eternal life moments hope to see you next week God bless you Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit Simple That's Simple To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at Earl Simple Truth at Gmail.com. That's Earl Simple Truth at Gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal. His simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m., right here on K Praise.